Little Tommy was out digging in the garden, <laughs> filling in a hole when a neighbor appeared over the fence and he was interested in what this little guy was doing and he looked up and he politely asked, he said, what are you doing there, little Tommy? He said, tearfully, my goldfish died without looking up and he says, and I've just buried him. Now the neighbor was concerned because the hole that he dug was a rather large hole and he said, that's an awfully big hole for a little tiny goldfish, isn't it, Tommy? And Tommy patted the last heap of earth on the ground and replied, that's because he's inside your dumb cat. <laughs> like that. The point is, things aren't always as they appear. And as we've discussed, that's certainly true of our ongoing topic. Um, in our last session, we learned that the word love in English doesn't always convey the message that we hope to convey when we use the word. And fortunately, in the Bible, specifically the New Testament, God uses, uh, in this particular case, in the Greek language, there are four different words to express love. And the words that he has chosen to use express a family love, which we'll call a sentimental love. There's a word that's used to express a friendship love, which would be a social love. There's a word to express a sexual or sensual love. And there's also the highest form of love, and that's the word agape, which expresses God's love or spiritual love. And it's a supernatural love, as we learned last time. It's impossible for any of us to generate that type of love on our own. It's distributed from God. And it's distributed as we come into a right relationship with God by believing in Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Romans 5.5 5, that the Holy Spirit then loves through us. And so that's the topic or the type of love that we'll focus on in this series. Because it's the love that God has for man. And it's the love that Christians are to have for one another. And so this leads us to the question for today in this session. And that's simply this. Should we love ourselves? Should we love ourselves? Now, I don't know if you've heard or you've seen in, in, uh, such encounters as uh, the one that I heard recently or saw recently where a psychologist was, was talking to someone and, and said, hey, um, I or we can't love you until you love you. You know, or, or, the, or it's like, you know, help us love you by you loving you. You know, should we really love ourselves? Is it true that we can't love others unless we first love ourselves? And what's interesting as we take a look at all this, you have to ask yourself the question, is it really what we're supposed to be doing? Should we love ourselves? You know, the idea is permeated in our bookstores and certainly in uh, radio and TV talk shows. It's promoted by the rich and the famous who are often quoted making such statements such as this. The most pleasurable journey that you take is through yourself. The only sustaining love involvement is with yourself. When you look back on your life and you try to figure out where you've been and where you're going, when you look at your work, your love affairs, your marriages, your children, your pain, your happiness, when you examine all that closely, what you really find out is that the only person you really go to bed with is yourself. The only thing that you have is working to the consummation of your own identity. And that's what I've been trying to do all of my life. For a generation... Western society has been obsessed with self. If you stop and think about it, it's like Heinz 57 varieties. What's the newest and the latest? Whether it's bringing crystals with you or whether it's uh, going to find some self-help book or something of that nature. Whether it's you know, the, the latest craze or the latest fad. There's always this obsession with somehow or another trying to find yourself. 
I remember meeting with a couple and she had decided she didn't want to be married anymore. And uh, she was meeting and we were sitting together and, and she was telling her husband that she didn't want to be married and, and that uh, the reason she wanted to marry is because she wanted to go and find herself. And I said, don't bother looking. Because when you find yourself, you're not going to be real happy with what you discovered. Finding ourselves, being in love with ourselves, absorbed with ourselves. You know, in the world, because of this type of philosophy, is in desperate straits. When we live to please ourselves, we will never be pleased. When we are absorbed with ourselves, we will never be content. If that is what our existence is all about, it's a very shallow existence indeed. Now, in the midst of all of this is the church. Christians, a body of believers who follow Jesus Christ. Not the building, but the people. In the midst of all of that, we have what would perhaps be the greatest opportunity to reach empty, shallow, and hollow people with the truth. And unfortunately, what has happened, instead of being light that exposes this nonsense for what it is, and instead of being salt, which produces a sense of thirst for truth, we have acclimated to our culture. We find ourselves in the same position. We worship fame and success and materialism and celebrity. We want to live for success as we look out for number one, and we don't mind winning, I might say, through intimidation. We have bought into the same philosophy. And what's sad is, is that the church is doing the same thing. We value the same system. Fame, success, materialism, celebrity. We watch the largest churches as they grow, and we send people out to them to find out what's the secret. What's the program? What's the success formula? We go to seminars on how to have multiple services. As if somehow you've got to go six months to find out if you don't have room for people, then guess what? Then you meet at a later hour. Turn that paper in. You know? I mean, think about it. These are the kind of things that we do. We have a preoccupation with these values, and it's perverted the church's message as well. Like the assistant to one renowned media pastor was asked a key to his success. He replied without hesitation, we give people what they want. We give people what they want. The heresy of that is at the root of the most dangerous message that's preached today, and that's this. What's in it for me? What's in it for me? Why should I go to church? Why should I listen to the message? Why should I go to a Bible study? What's in it for me? One of those pastors preached this message. Money can buy a house, but not a home. Money can buy a bed, but not sleep. Money can buy a clock, but not time. Money can buy a book, but not knowledge. Money can buy food, but it cannot buy an appetite. Money can buy position, but not respect. It can buy blood, but not life. Money can buy medicine, but not health. Money can buy sex, but not love. Money can buy insurance, but not safety. You see, money is not everything. Therefore, if you have too much money, please send it to me immediately. I need it for Christmas. You know, there's always a little bit of a catch there, isn't there? So it should come as no surprise that some Christian writers insist that the Bible actually encourages us as believers to love ourselves. And the favorite passage that they quote, if you've got your Bibles, Matthew chapter 22, look at it with me and see if indeed the Bible teaches this philosophy. Should we 
love ourselves? Should we be obsessed with ourselves? Matthew chapter 22, starting with verse 37. We read these words. Answering the question, Teacher, what is the great commandment of the law? Jesus replied, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Some Christian psychologists, as they read this, insist that Jesus' words are that we are instructed to love ourselves. Self-love is promoted as the key to a meaningful existence. And if you don't have a meaningful existence, it's because you have low self-esteem. And the only way you can have a higher sense of self-esteem is to begin to love and accept yourself. The problem with that is, is that's not what Jesus taught. He said that we are to love God first with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. In other passages, we're told if we keep God first or commit our ways to Him, it gives us the desires of our heart, that if we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, then everything else will be, all these other things that He was referring to will be added unto you. The bottom line is, He says, that you love God first, and then you love your neighbor as yourself. The arrangement of the passage is very simple. The the inference is, the implication is, Jesus is saying, love other people as you already love yourself. No one has to tell you to love yourself. We already do. He says, now love other people just as much in the same way that you love yourself. There's so much confusion, but the wonderful thing about the Bible is is that it provides such clarity. While you've got your Bible open, look at John chapter 13. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John chapter 13. And notice what Jesus commands us to do is to love one another, not ourselves. John 13, look at verse 34. He says, The new commandments I give unto you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this all men will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. Notice the commandment is, is that you love one another. He goes on 16 different times we are told to love one another. Jesus repeats it in a a chapter in 15 in verse 12 where we see the same thing. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. In verse 17 he says, this I command you that you love one another. 16 times we are commanded to love one another. Now I don't know about you, but I'm not always the sharpest guy around. No, not always the sharpest tack in the box, not always the brightest bulb. But I do know this, and I've come to conclude this. If somebody tells me something 16 times, I'm thinking it's important. You know what I'm saying? I know that we've all kind of grown up with the attitude, uh, will this be on the test? (laughs) Professor, is this on the test? If it's on the test, I'm going to go ahead and pay attention. Well, if someone says to you, I'm telling you for the 16th time, love one another. I think it's important. Thinking it's important. The command is so important, the New Testament continues to emphasize this point. Listen to the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4 9, he says, Concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. 
to have a big, long lecture about this. You're taught by God to love one another. You're commanded by Jesus to love one another. We're told 16 different occasions, love one another. John writes, this is the message you've heard from the beginning, 1 John 3, 1, that you should love one another. You've heard this before from the very beginning, that you should love one another. This is the commandment that we should believe on the name of, of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us this commandment. This commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. 1 John 5, 1 through 3, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him, who begot us also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we are children of God when we love God and we keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome to us. The commandment is simple, love one another. Look at Romans chapter 13. Romans 13, verses 8 through 10, conveys the same thought. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it is summed up by this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. I want to talk a little bit more about that in a second, but the evidence, I think, is overwhelming as we go through this. The Bible does not urge us, encourage us to love ourselves. It assumes we already do. Ephesians 5.29 says this, No one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as the Lord does himself. No one ever has hated himself. Now, I am going to pop a bubble here by this next statement. Even those who have low self-esteem are guilty of self-love when they're feeling sorry for themselves that no one loves them. Listen to that very carefully. Why? Because it's self-motivated and self-centered. When a person says, I have low self-esteem because nobody loves me, you know, I think I'll eat a worm and die. What they're saying in essence is, hey, feel sorry for me because nobody loves me. And that in itself is rooted in what? Self-love. And as we look at this, the Bible clearly teaches that we are to love one another as we love ourselves. The one another relationships mentioned a hundred times in the Bible. Our responsibilities are spelled out in great detail in attitudes and actions, and we're going to look at some of those in a second. But Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him, what? Love himself? Find himself? Feel good about himself? Then he can pick up his cross daily and follow me. He says, if any of you wants to come after me, let him, what? Deny yourself. The problem is ourself. Self is the problem. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me. It's interesting. I did a chapel this morning. Uh, Major League Baseball and uh, minor league executives are meeting over in Anaheim. And uh, there was a, a room full of baseball executives that were there in the chapel that I spoke at. And as I was speaking to one of the gentlemen who came in prior to that, he was talking about the, the, just the, the, uh, the conflict and the struggle that is there. As last night he was at a function and, you know, and the, the booze was flowing and the partying was there and the, the encouragement, the enticement to be a part of this and to be, you know, to, to be a part of what's going on. 
and, and, the, and the struggle that was there and wanted to be accepted by this group because after all, the only way you're going to be, quote, successful in the world's eyes is what? Is that you have to be able to be involved with the group of people and network and do all those things. And so the real con conflict was, what am I going to do? Am I going to deny myself the compromising situation of being able to blend in and do what's right before God? How do I define success? And the Bible clearly says, you know what? If you want to be successful, then you know what? Meditate on the Word of God day and night. Being careful to do all that is written in it or according to all that is written in it, Joshua 7, 1, 7, and 8. Be careful to meditate on the Word of God day and night. Being careful to do according to all that is written in it. And then you will be successful and you will be prosperous. And then he goes on and says, have I not commanded you? Have some courage. Have some strength. Do what's right before God. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Psalm 1. But his delight is what? In the law of the Lord. And he meditates on it day and night. And he's got deep roots, man. So when that wind of, of, uh, of compromise comes blowing across your body, you're not swayed to just go along with the crowd. That if God has you there and it's ordained by God for you to be there, then you know what? Then no man can get rid of you. Don't we understand that? How sad that is that so many of us sell out and compromise because we think that if we get this position, how much greater influence we'll have for the kingdom of God, but then we compromise to get there. Like the quote that I gave several weeks ago about Bill Bradley running for president, who when he was a rookie at, with the New York Knicks gave his life to Jesus Christ and went around telling people about how God loved him and how Jesus died for him. And now he renounces that because, you know what, it's just not, it's not politically correct. You won't get elected if you're identified with those people. All I can say to him and to us and to every one of us is this. You know what? You don't want to be where God hasn't prepared for you ahead of time because you're in the wrong place at the wrong time doing what's wrong before God. How can you have success? How can you prosper? If God has ordained it, you'll get there. And you'll get there without compromising your walk with Jesus Christ. You see, the evidence is overwhelming. We are to deny ourselves. We're to take up our cross. That's a far cry from loving ourselves that's so extensively promoted in our culture. Self-preservation is not the message. We're urged to lay down our lives. 1 John 3.16 says, hey, if you behold your brother in need, you're to lay down your life, your lives, which has to do with your, your goals and your dreams and your aspirations. He says, greater man, love has no man than this, that he'd lay down his life. Physically, God says we're to give up our dreams and give up our goals and give up our plans because we can plan our ways, but God has to direct our paths. How many of us often struggle with the leading of God in our life, the direction that he wants to take us versus where we want to go? We have that tugging on our heart by the Spirit of God saying, this is the direction that God wants to take you. And you say, but I don't, that's not, I've never, I, that's not my plans. I've never planned that. I've never dreamt that. I've never had aspirations to do that. I, you know, I can't do that. And we fight God. But he's leading us, clearly, but we're going to fight him anyway. Why? Because we've bought into, hey, love yourself, do what you want to do, and then uh, we'll all love you. Really? There's a problem with that. Greater love has this than no man that would lay down his life for a friend. What a great story that I heard about a little boy who was asked to donate blood to his sister who was dying of a disease. 
not sure what the disease was, but he, his was the only blood type that would work, and so they asked him to go ahead and, and to give his blood. And so after much uh, trepidation and some fear, he agreed to do it. And so they laid him on a table next to his sister, and sure enough, a blood transfusion took place. And then as they completed, he was laying there, and he had this look on his face. And his mother said, honey, what's the matter? And she said, and he said, well, when, when do I die? And she said, what do you mean, when do you die? He said, well, when you asked me to give my blood, I thought that you were going to take all of it and that I was going to die. Can you imagine to have that great a love? So when do I die? And to say, I, I'm willing to deny myself, my very life, so that another could live. Come back to that in a second because the Bible clearly teaches that that's the kind of love that we're to have for one another. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, we're going to take a look at what God wants us to know about agape or spiritual, supernatural Christian love. It's a very short passage, but profound in the depth in which God explains to us what agape or spiritual love is all about. 1 John chapter 2, starting with verse 7, we read this. Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you've had from the very beginning. The old commandment is the word which you've heard. Now on the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you which is true in him and also in you. Notice that. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. It says, but the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness, does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Notice what he says. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you. There's nothing new about this commandment. In Leviticus 19.18, we're told, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So there's nothing new about this at all, but what in Greek, we got the same problem as we do in English with the word love, with the word new. And that is this, there's two words that were used to express this idea of being new. The first word has to do with that, that had to do with in time. I am not writing to you something that's new in time, because you already know the scriptures teaches from the very beginning that first of all, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Uh, strength. Hear, O Israel, that. That's the greatest commandment. But he says, and that you also love your neighbor as yourself. Now, you already know that. You've already studied that. You already debate that. He goes, but I'm writing something new to you in what? In freshness. A new approach, a different look, a different take that has never been expressed before up until that point in time. So he's saying, hey, look, you know what? I'm not writing something new to you because you already know that. But I am writing something new to you in freshness, a fresh approach, a different look, one that God wants us to now have in our life. And that's an exciting thing as we take a look at that because it's going to help us to understand this whole idea of loving one another as God intended for us to love each other. So there's three important truths from that. It'll be a very simple outline. The first one is this, and that is that this commandment is new in emphasis. It's new in emphasis. See, in the Old Testament, the command that God's people love one another was only one of many commandments. 
And in fact, the question that was asked of Jesus that we read earlier, which is the greatest commandment? The whole reason they asked him that question was because they had debated it for centuries. And the reason that they debated it was that they had come up with a list of 613 commandments that they clearly found in Scripture. Now stop and think about that for a second. 613 commandments, and when you look at it, 248 were positive ones, meaning do what I tell you to do, that's a command. And then there were negative ones of don't do these things. So can you imagine there's 613 commandments in the law, and when Jesus was asked the question, they hoped to resolve the debate once and for all. Because their attitude was very simple and it would be like ours. How in the world, God, do you expect us to keep 613 commandments? Some of us go, wow, you know, I know the Ten Commandments. And even then you don't. You know how many people you run into that they say, well, I live by the Ten Commandments. Here's the next question. Please ask them this. Can you name those? The chances are real good. If they can't name them, they're probably not living by them. So, boom, that kind of shoots that right there, and it opens up a whole new, new door of conversation. But the point is, it's like, well, I live by the Ten Commandments. Well, you know, there's 613. Well, how are you going to obey them if you don't know them? If you don't even know 10, what's the chance of obeying 613? What's the whole point of the commandments anyway? What's the point of the law anyway? The point of the law is so that you and I understand we can't obey all those. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Commandment number one. You know what? Can you really honestly in your heart say that you always do that? Really? Thou shalt not lie? Give me a break. What do you want to call it? It's still a lie. I'm bending the truth. You didn't bend it. You snapped it and you broke it into 50 million pieces and kicked it under the rug. You're bending it. You know? What else? Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods? Hey, Christmas is coming. Busted. Guilty. Right? Why? Why did God give us the commandments? Why did he give us the law? Because he wanted us to see that we have no chance to get to heaven without him. The Bible says that the law is a teacher or a tutor that will lead us directly to Jesus Christ. Isn't that great? We can't keep all these laws. But they debated them anyway. They tried the best that they could. And what Jesus did was he picked this out of all of these and said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. How is it possible for one commandment out of 613 to stand head and shoulders above all the others? Because love is the fulfillment of God's law. That's why. 1 Corinthians 13, when we get to it, we're going to realize that, you know what, because love is the greatest. There's nothing like it. Love is the fulfillment of God's law. So, let me help, hopefully you understand the new emphasis that's placed on this command to love one another. How many of you have children? Raise your hand. Okay, how many of you know that if you do not take care of your children, there are laws under which you can be prosecuted for not meeting their needs. How many of you know that? Okay. Now, how many of you had this conversation this week? The wife gets up, looks at the husband and says, Honey, you better get out of bed and get to work, 
or you may be arrested. And he goes, wow, you better get out of bed and make their lunches so they don't call the cops on us. Huh? Anybody have that conversation? Yeah, one. <laughs> Good. What's the point? The point is very simple. Can you imagine at the end of that conversation going, Whoa, good thing they have those laws or would stay in bed all day. Think about it. Good thing, huh? Listen. We do as parents what we're supposed to do because we are compelled by love. We are motivated by love. And a lot of times we don't even know that that's going on because it's become such a part of our existence. We do what we do. There isn't a day that I go to work going, man, I'm going to work today because I love my family. I'm going to work today because i got to buy them stuff or they're going to call the cops and throw me in jail. What in the world? We do it because it's just we're compelled to do it. We're motivated by love to do it to provide for those who are counting on us to provide for them. Now, sometimes we do so grudgingly, and sometimes we do so and go, what, do they appreciate it? Do they understand it? But you know what? For the most part, we just do it because it's the right thing to do. God's people at a point in time in, in, in the future, the nation of Israel will go under tremendous tribulation and persecution. And there will be those who stand up for the nation of Israel, the people of God, Israel, and they'll help them through the tribulation period. And when they stand before the judgment seat of Christ one day, He's going to say to them, you know what? When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you even came and you risked your life by visiting me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And their response was, we know that, we are keeping track. We did it because we were afraid that we were breaking some law. Their response was, when? When did we do this stuff? I don't remember. He said, when you did it to the least of my brethren, you've done it unto me. See, giving, spiritual, supernatural, agape love, was an overflow of God's relationship in the person's life who begins to be motivated and compelled to action because we love people because God loves people and God wants to love people through us. Not because we're keeping track of it, not because we may go to jail or they may call the police. We do it because we love. And we love because He first loved us. See, we need to recognize and understand it's new in emphasis. It's not simply now one of many commandments. It stands at the top of the list. And as a result, if it's at the top of that list, it should be at the top of the priority scale in our life. From the moment we become Christians, love is implanted in our hearts by the Holy Spirit's presence. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness. The Spirit of God loves through us when we have a right relationship with God. See, God doesn't have to give a new believer a long lecture about love. Why? Because we're instructed by the Spirit of God who lives in us to love people. God sees through our eyes. He touches through our hands. He gives through the resources that He has given to us so that we can bless others and glorify God in the process. Isn't that wonderful? 
a new believer will discover that he now hates what he used to love and that he loves what he used to hate. Isn't that true? I can recall vividly, and God has never let me forget this, and I never will, sitting in a college course in a class and listening to a couple who stood up and we're talking about the evils of the world and whether it's society, whether it's the environment, whether it's hereditary, you know, blah, blah, whatever. And they debated on and on and on. But this couple stood up and with the courage of their conviction said, you know what? We can debate all the different causes all you want, but there's one solution to the problem in this world today. And that's God so loved this world that he sent his only begotten son into the world that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life that Jesus Christ came to die for sinners. That he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And by trusting and believing in him, that we can become new creatures. Old things pass away. All things become something new. And I sat there and I looked and I yelled out in front of everybody, shut up and sit down. Can't stand you people. And I can't stand the message. And now I love those people. And now I promote the same message because I have the same Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, a new believer finds out that they, they now hate the things they used to love and love the things they used to hate. That there's a change in our life. The God of the universe can't take up residence in a person's life without there being drastic changes. How can a person say, ah, I, I, I checked the card, I prayed the prayer, I come to know Jesus? And nothing is different in their life. Whoa! We got people that come and visit us because we live in sunny Southern California. We get people from England. We get people from all over the place. And when they come, they make an impact on our house. I always like to mess around with my wife every now and then. The guy from Baseball Chapel is here from New Jersey, and he called the other day and said, hey, we need to get together for dinner and... And our house right now, it's like, we're, you know, where it's half decorated, the tree's half up, you know, it's like, you know, I put the lights up, I got that done, I heard Mark had a heart attack putting up Christmas tree lights, so I try to use that as an excuse, honey, you know, but, and, and so it's like, and we had a busy week, and it's all that, so I'm, I'm on the phone, and, and he, he wasn't on the other end, and I go like this, well, we'd love to have you over for dinner Saturday night, in fact, you know, why don't you bring the couple who works with the Dodgers, and, and why don't you all come down, we'll have dinner Saturday night, I hung up the phone. It was priceless. Because I didn't think Linda was listening. But man, she's like, what? I'm just kidding. We're going to go meet him at a restaurant. But you know, every now and then, you got to do stuff like 25 years, you start running out of stuff. I mean, you see, I start. You know, some of you are like, you've been here a long time. You go, hey, you told that joke in 1980. One, I think. Yeah, what did you learn today? I don't know, but you told that joke. I heard you tell it before. I know it was you. But the point is, is that to love one another is new and fresh in emphasis. So many people live their life today and coming from a background in which there was a list of do's and don'ts. And I hope that I'm doing enough good, and I hope I'm not doing enough bad, and I hope I'm hanging around. See, my game plan was hanging around people worse than me. Because then, you know, it's like God's picking out a group he's going to zap, you know, and go, well, you know what, that guy's not as bad as the rest of them. You know, set him aside. You know, I knew people on an airplane when we were flying on charters that would want to sit next to, quote, the chaplain, because there's no way God would kill a chaplain in an airplane crash. 
you know, just we all have stupid ideas about, you know, how God operates, right? Thank God he gives us his word to reveal exactly who he is and what he's all about and what his game plan is and how he does things. It's wonderful. Frees you up from all that stuff. But think about it. It's new in emphasis. Why is it new in emphasis? Because you know what? Listen, it's new in example. You say it's new in example. What are you talking about? Well, here's what I'm talking about. Notice what he says in verse 8. On the other hand, I'm writing a new commandment, fresh in emphasis, which is true what? In him and in you. That is so awesome. You know why? Because Jesus said we are to love others. How? As I have loved you. God has taken all the guesswork away when Jesus Christ appeared became manifest. We could see Him. There was no longer any guesswork as to who God was and how God conducts Himself and how God operates. We beheld His glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. We beheld Him. We looked at Him. We saw how He lived. We saw what He did. We heard what He said. We beheld Him. And Jesus says, yeah, and now you love others just as I loved you. There's my example. And there's no guesswork. Why? We have the Gospels. In fact, our next series is going to be one of them. I'm not sure which one, but they're all good. So can't go wrong there. But, 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 but he loved, and he loved, and is an example to us. So as we read through the Gospel, we see how Jesus loved people. I think of how he loved his disciples. They weren't the easiest guys to love. They argued over who was the greatest. When children came to Jesus, they said, get away from them, kid, you're bothering them. Think about it. When others had needs and came to them, they were trying to like weed them out. Okay, and what's your need? We'll, de we'll decide whether or not you can have access to him. You see that, how that works all the time. If you have anybody that has an executive secretary or whatever, man, you've got to get past that pit bull bulldog. <laughs> you know, throw a piece of meat in the corner and then run in the room. I mean, it's like, uh, does he know what this is regarding? He will. That doesn't work, does it? See, you know, and they were trying to, you know, they were screening people for Jesus. You know, Jesus was busy, you know, he couldn't handle all that. So they took it upon themselves. And he loved them anyway. Can you imagine? I mean, all the things I think about that they did, it's just so, it's just so amazing to me. When he was arrested, they all ran away and hid. When he was praying in the garden, they all fell asleep. They bickered like little kids about everything that was going on, and Jesus loved them anyway. Wow, that's pretty good stuff. Think about it. He never showed hatred or malice. He hated sin, but he loved people. And there's a big difference between love and acceptance. And I would hope that our culture, especially God's people, would understand the difference between the two. Because our society doesn't. And they pan off love as being, well, then you have to accept everything if you love people. That's stupid. That was, I'm sure that was too blunt, sorry. But it is. That's stupid. I can love a person and not accept their behavior. Can't you? God does. When the woman was caught in adultery, you know what Jesus said to her? He said, listen, go and what? Sin no more. I love you. I came to seek you out. I came to die for you. But your behavior is not acceptable. In fact, thou shalt not commit adultery. You're guilty of the law. And if you're guilty of one aspect, you're guilty of all of it. You're busted. And that's why all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Jesus loved her 
But he didn't accept her behavior because he couldn't, as a holy God, accept that which is not holy. He couldn't accept sin. But he loved her. And she felt she could approach him. How many of us have people in our life who are living in sin and they feel like we're not approachable? I'm afraid of what you will think. I'm afraid of what you will say. I'm afraid of your condemning attitude towards me. I hate living the way I live. I want to be free from this, but I don't know who to turn to. So I turn to people that are just like me and just as miserable as me and thinking somehow I'm going to find some kind of a, 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 of a way out of this. We're to be light. We're to be salt. There shouldn't be anything that goes on in the life of another person that they don't feel like they can come to us because we reflect the love of Jesus Christ in our life. You're right, what you're doing is wrong, but God loves you. And if you confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and cleanse you from unrighteousness. The Word of God is a lamp under your feet. It shines on you and it convicts you when you're guilty, but it's a light under your path and it teaches you where you need to go to continue to be right with God. People came to Jesus, the sinners, the publicans, the harlots, the hard and harsh people of the world came to Him. Why? Because He received them and the religious people kicked them out. He loved people. It's even more amazing to me is how He treated His enemies. On the way to the cross, He comforted the women who were grief-stricken by what they saw. On the cross, He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I want to tell you a problem I got. I love people that are lovable. They are so easy to love. How about you? This is our first illustrated grandson illustration. Been saving it for this day. He's four years old. He is so easy to love. He's hilarious. He's full of energy. He says the greatest things. The other day, I fixed a light bulb on the tree, and he looked at me and said, Papa, you're Mr. Fix-It. <laughs> I love you. What, what? You want some candy? What? I mean, some money? Buy him some stuff. It's like, ah, you know, it's like, and I had never fixed anything in my life. I couldn't even work for our own company. <laughs> but he thinks I'm Mr. Fix-It. What a great kid. And he's easy to love because he's lovable. But God's love loves those who aren't even likable. Uh, uh. Oh, isn't it great? See, but if I've been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life that I now live in this flesh, I live by my faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. See, if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. And old things pass away and all things become new. And people that we used to hate, we now love and we're compelled to love because God's Spirit loves through us. And the only thing that keeps him from loving through us is our resistance of his love in our life. Jesus is our example. Jesus is our standard. Jesus is who we turn to when we ask the question, what would Jesus do or what would Jesus say or how would Jesus respond? 
and we turn to the Word of God and it clearly teaches us exactly what He would do, exactly what He did say. And He's our example. He's our standard. Listen to me. We are not the standard for one another. Do not choose another Christian as your standard for how Christian love should be. Because we usually will pick an excuse instead of an example. But Jesus Christ is our example. The emphasis is new and it's fresh and we're not doing things because God gives us a list and says do this, do that. It's new and fresh because we now have the ability. Notice what he says, that love was in Jesus Christ and that love is now in us. How is that love in us? When we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, the Spirit of God now indwells the life of the believer so that His love is now in our lives. And the fruit of the Spirit now is love who loves others through us. It's new in us. Do you realize how, how wonderful it is to recognize the fact that God has placed in each one of us who have believed and trusted in Jesus Christ the Holy Spirit of God as a down payment for the promises that He has made? And one day He says, where, where my Spirit is, I will call my Spirit back to myself and with the Spirit of God comes God's people. And so the Spirit of God is given to each one of us. God no longer dwells in some box or something made out of human hands, but He lives within the lives of believers who have trusted in Jesus Christ. And now we can love exactly how Jesus has loved. That's the example we're given. And it's new as we close in experience. It's new in experience. The passage gives the illustration of light and darkness and talks about, you know what, there's a new way to live. You don't live like you used to live in darkness and foolishness and doing the things you used to do. You don't hold grudges. You don't not forgive people. You don't gossip about people or slander people or covet what they have or envy them. You don't do any of that now. Why? Because you walk in a manner worthy of your calling. You don't walk in darkness as you used to in the futility of your mind subjected to the things of this world because there was no hope. But now we walk according to the newness of the Spirit. Read Galatians 5 and Ephesians chapter 4 and see the contrast. Lord, how am I supposed to live today? Hey, read the Bible. It'll tell you exactly what you're supposed to do. How you used to and now what you're supposed to. It's pretty simple. Some of us walk around, we're all confused. I don't know what God wants me to do. Hey, read the book. You got it. Read it. See, it's new in experience. It changes the way we live our life. Isn't it a wonderful thing? The Christian life is two relationships. One is vertical with God and two is horizontal with man. And it flows through us. If our relationship with God is right, our relationship with man will be right. You realize in 1 Peter 3, we've talked about it in marriage series and things like that, but if a man isn't right with his wife, even his prayers to God are hindered. Why is that? Because if our fellowship with God's not right and our fellowship with man's not right, then we're walking in darkness, not in light. We cannot have, listen carefully, we cannot have fellowship with God if we do not have fellowship with other believers. Do you realize that? That's why Jesus said, if you come to the altar and you present your altar on the table and you know somebody has something against you, there's nothing more important in this lifetime than to leave that offering there and you go to them. And you try to reconcile with them. You try to change their mind about what they believe. Not always does it work out. I went through it a couple weeks ago. Not always is a person interested in it. Not always do they want to have a change of mind because they believed what they believed so long they don't want to hear the truth. But I don't care because God said to do it. And we have to make an effort to get it done. And then we can turn and go back and resume our fellowship with God. See, but it's part of being obedient. It's new and experienced. That's how love plays out. Love one another. Wash one another's feet. Prefer, honor one another. Be of the same mind with one another. 
consider others more important as yourself and humility of mind. Consider the fact that other people in your life are more important than you. Now, how does that tie into love yourself? Deny yourself. Consider others more important than yourself. Put other people first in your life. Love them as you already love yourself. Should we love ourselves? Absolutely not. God loves us, and we already do love ourselves. And we don't have to make that a priority in any one of our lives. It's amazing. Build one another up. Bear one another's burdens. Confess your faults to one another. Use hospitality to one another. In short, all of those things are what we should be doing, and that's how love is demonstrated. Now, what's interesting is what happens to a believer who doesn't love other people? He lives in darkness. He thinks he's okay, but he's not okay. And if you're not loving the, the brethren, you're not okay. If you've got anger in your heart, you're not okay. If you've got envy in your soul, you're not okay. You need to get right. And you think you're okay because you're in darkness, and that's why you think you're okay. That's why we've got to have people in our life who restore one another in gentleness and accountability and consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but continuing to encourage each other and all the more as we see the day drawing near. Why? Because we can be blinded by sin in our life. And it is a blinder. If you're sitting here today and you've got something against somebody, and, the near, and you know what? And here's the amazing thing. If you've come to know Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God indwells you, when the Word of God goes out, He's already convicting your heart. You know whether you've got something against somebody else and you're harboring bitterness and anger and resentment. God says, what are you waiting for? Go and get it resolved. Because if you don't, you're living in darkness. And you know what? Not only that, but not only are you living with darkness, but you know what? In verse 10 says, and you are a stumbling block to other believers. Why? Because they don't see the love of Christ in your life. Not only are you a stumbling block to other believers, think how much greater stumbling block you are to those who don't know Jesus Christ. Wow. You know, I knew a Christian once, and man, they were the most judgmental, angry, mean-spirited person I ever met. And if they're following Jesus, and that's what this Jesus thing's all about, no interest here, partner. But man, I knew a person that, you know what, they knew exactly what was going on in my life. They didn't condone it. They got in my face, but they spoke the truth in love. They told me what the cause of my problem was. They told me that Jesus Christ is a solution. And you know what? And I'll never forget the way they approached that. Why? Because we loved as Jesus loved. So in conclusion, the question is this. Should you love yourself? The Bible teaches that you already do. That you already do, and so do I. What it also teaches is that loving yourself is the problem and not the priority. That loving yourself keeps you from seeing your responsibilities towards others and from obedience to our Lord's new and fresh commandment. That's new in emphasis. We don't do it because we have to do it. We do it because the love of God compels us to do it. Because the Spirit of God lives in us if we've trusted in Christ. We do it not because of the example of others, but we love others because of the example of Jesus. And we're going to love them as He loved them. There's the standard for love. And we're going to be doing it every day, and that's new in experience. Because being a Christian is seven days a week, 24 hours a day, until Jesus comes or until he calls you home. See, it's not just relegated to Sundays or a Bible study. It's every day, everywhere. The world is longing and looking for answers to the shallowness of our culture. And only God and his love 
can pull someone out of the abyss that is so dark and bring them into the light. A friend should be radical. They should love you when you're unlovable, hug you when you're unhuggable, and bear you when you're unbearable. A friend should be fanatical. They should cheer when the whole world boos, dance when you get good news, and cry when you cry too. But most of all, a friend should be mathematical. They should multiply the joy, divide the sorrow, subtract the past, and add to tomorrow. Calculate the need deep in your heart and always be bigger than the sum of the parts. It has been said, it is vain, O men, that you seek within yourselves the cure for your miseries. All your insight only leads you to the knowledge that it is not in yourselves that you will discover the true and the good, but only in a relationship with the God who created you can such be found by giving your heart and your life to Jesus Christ. Father, we just thank you for your word, for its truth, for providing clarity in a culture of confusion. God, help us to love others as you have loved. The emphasis on doing it because we're compelled to do it, we want to do it, and we're oblivious of the fact that it's become so part of our nature that we don't even know that we're doing it. To do it and experience on a daily basis, to see and taste and know the kindness of the Lord that is good. And Lord, we realize that this kind of love only comes from you. And the only way that we can have a part of it or have access to it is by accepting Jesus Christ and his death on the cross as a provision for our sin. And Lord, I just pray for those who are listening to this message who may have not got to the point yet where they've called upon the name of the Lord, that they'll do so today. That they'll acknowledge their sin, that they realize they can't keep all the law, they've, they've, they're guilty of it, they know that in their heart. To recognize what you say, that all of us are sinners. To realize that you have the provision for that sin, that you sent Jesus out of love, motivated by love, to die on the cross in our place. And you tell us if we'll just trust in him and believe in him, acknowledging our sin and that he died for us, that you give us the privilege to be called children of God to those who believe in his name. Lord, I just pray that each one of us today will have that understanding and know with beyond a shadow of a doubt that we have come into a relationship with you by trusting in Jesus Christ. And the evidence of that transformation are that we'll begin to love things that we hated and hate things that we love. That we'll love, that we'll love sinners and hate sin that we'll hate the things that we did in the past but begin to love the things that we do in the future. And that there'll be evidence in our life that is so unmistakable and our color so clear that not only will, our, will your spirit, bearing witness with our spirit, know that we're children of God, but the world around, around us will see the love of Jesus in our life. And we just pray these things and thank you for your great love. In Christ's name, amen.